Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hey, hello, channel pros. Thank you for listening. This is Rob Spee, your host, channel expert and founder of Channel Journeys Consulting, where I partner with my clients to accelerate the development of their channel business and the growth in their channel sales. Welcome. Welcome to episode 17 of Channel Journeys. My guest today is Craig Schlagbaum. He is a well-known and respected channel chief, and he is the vice president of indirect channels at Comcast. Craig is a longtime channel veteran in the telecom industry. He knows all the ins and outs. He's the recipient of many channel awards and a member of the Channel Futures Think Tank. He is my first Channel Journeys podcast guest, who I would say was born in the channel, and you'll hear more about that towards the end of the podcast. I had a great time talking with Craig all about the telco agent model, something that I didn't know as much about prior to this podcast. We talk about how Comcast is driving partner success and how Craig thinks the agent and MSP worlds are converging. A lot of great content here, so let's dive into it. Here we go. Hey, Craig, good morning. Welcome to the Channel Journeys podcast. Hey, it's great to be here, Rob. Thanks for having me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad to get you on the show. I've been wanting to have you for some time and and talk about kind of a different world that you're in, in the the telco space with Comcast. So I want to talk about your world and why your program is so successful and what you've been doing for many, many years, why you personally and professionally have been so successful. You're, You're highly recognized as an influencer in the channel. And then we can talk a little bit about your channel journey, too, and, and how you got to where you are. Does that sound good? Yeah, perfect. Why don't we start with first, you are the head, the VP of Indirect Channels at Comcast. Give us a quick overview of what that means, what you do at the company. Yeah, so um, you know, I run the channel for Comcast Business. Comcast Business is about a $7 billion division of Comcast Corporation, and uh, we're on the business side of things. So not to be confused with Xfinity, which is the residential brand that we sell to consumers. And we sell uh, essentially network products and network management products. So um, broadband, you know, coax services uh, to small, medium, and even some large businesses like retail establishments like a Starbucks, for example. And we sell more advanced solutions um, like fiber solutions up to 10 gigabits a second where a customer has a big data center, uh, might need our connectivity to reach the Amazon cloud or Microsoft Azure or Google, what have you. Um, and then we also sell software-defined networking platforms that allow our partners to not only use our network, but also to manage the networks, um, and we built all that for them. So I uh, have a potpourri of business class services that are designed to support people in the communication space. It's, it's astonishing, really. We, we add a new customer every 15 seconds now. To our network. <laughs> so it's wow, that's pretty, that's pretty powerful. And of that $7 billion, how much of that is... Uh, through the channel, with the channel. You don't really do through the channel, but channel involved, let's say. Is your is your strategy for the, the business segment, everything involves a partner or how do you approach that? Well, I think we look at it as to where the partner is really in control of the end user relationship. There's a lot of customers out there. Some want to buy direct, especially with services like these. And in our space and our competitors in this space, whether it's the ILEX or others, 
none of them have most of their business going through the channel the way you might find a Cisco or a Microsoft um, because the roots of these companies have all been very direct. Uh, it's in definitely double digits. It's, a, it's the fastest growing percent, um, but we're not 80% channel driven. Uh, however, um, there's so much opportunity there. I mean, every year we've been growing at more than double digit, you know, in the higher than 20% range every year in the channel in terms of growth over the prior year. So it's been a fascinating journey to see that. And uh, it just shows that the demand for bandwidth and these kind of services is very plentiful. And the partners where they add value, they find the customer relationship because some customers prefer to do business with their trusted advisor as opposed to buying direct for a lot of good reasons. Some have mm -hmm. to do with, you know, multiple network providers, multiple services they need to buy. And that's why they come to our channel versus a direct rep who, you know, it's great if, being a shareholder, I love it if it's Comcast, but from the lens of the end user, they may be wanting to put together an offering of, you know, a voice offering from one company, a network offering from another company, uh, Microsoft software, and the partner can assemble all of that instead of having to go to different places. So that's the value of the channel in this space. And they help it make it easier for customers to do business in this space. What does your channel look like? What's the makeup of your types of partners that you have? Yeah, good question. And we have thousands of them around the country, but um, most of them are what most people would call agents or brokers. They've grown up in a world where they either work for a, a, a telecom company or a related company selling those services as an employee of one of those companies and then went on to be an independent broker, much like, a, say, an independent insurance person would be or a financial advisor where they sell on behalf of many other providers, but they earn a commission for the base of revenue they develop. So that's the financial model. And I'd say that this channel is probably 75, 80% that. The fastest growing portion though is companies like MSPs and former bars that have converted into that who want to participate in the model. And the reason they want to participate is they know their customer needs these services we offer. And either they can be part of that and in the middle of all that, which their customer typically wants them to control, they run the risk of not participating in it by abdicating the customer who will say, well, I may need to go to somebody else who will help assemble all this for me because I don't want to go to a phone company here and a cable company there and a voice company here and so on. I want one neck to choke. And that's why I think MSPs and bars are more entering the space than ever before because they see that need to control the end-to-end -end network and the software. So it's it's applications and the network that really are the, the world we live in today. You're either in one of those two camps. So that's where we fit in. I just saw this come up. I was at a Channel Pro uh, MSP event in Atlanta just a few weeks ago. And one of the partners stood up and he was talking about how he's selling your types of services and what a great addition it is to his business for this long-term recurring revenue. And he even mentioned cases where he has customers who aren't even his customers customers anymore, but he's still receiving a commission. Yes. Does that ha does that happen in your network? Well, yeah, because the typical uh, payment model. There's some that people that want to be paid up front, and we have an option for that. But a lot of people want the residual income, and it lasts for the life of the customer as long as you're supporting the customer. You can't like build a whole base of customers and then just leave them, and then we we manage them. You have to be actively involved and manage those customers, but. Um, but if you do, you know, you, you're entitled to the commissions for as long as we build that end user. So it can be very lucrative and, and, you know, so much so I think, you know, you look at companies like ScanSource, a big distributor out of South Carolina, they bought our largest master agent, um, which is our view of a distributor. 
And they did so because the model is very profitable. And unlike the hardware-centric model where the margins are pretty paper thin, this is a much more margin-rich environment. Um, I refer to it as assetless gross margins because effectively the money they're earning is for an asset they don't own and they don't have to support, they don't have the bad debt on it. So all they're doing is selling the service and earning an income stream from selling a service as opposed to the support cost required to sell that service, which we endure and which our competitors endure. So you're seeing, I think, a lot of things going on in the industry where distributors are looking at this model and certainly every distributor out there, whether it's Ingram, Tech Data, et cetera, are all trying to create these service-based models. They haven't necessarily gotten full bore into the network space, but they're all jumping into selling services that involve SaaS and other things that can be sold not as a product off of a shelf and distributed physically, but as a virtual uh, service that can be sold virtually. And that's mm -hmm. what's going on. That's what we see. So the reason I think MSPs are seeing is like, hey, my customer is going to demand this of me, whether I want to or not. Uh, but I probably should be involved anyway, because that's my value add is owning the end to end relationship with the client. Um, and even if they don't want to do that, an MSP can partner up with one of our agents and have a reciprocal relationship where you know there's compensation that you know I'm not privy to, but they'll make a deal between each other of working with each other. It's much like what I would consider be like a general contractor building houses. You know, they know the general house what has to be built, but they need a plumber, an electrician, and a framer. And that's really, I think, the relationship that some of our agents have with VARs and MSPs is that sort of symbiotic relationship. So that's kind of the ecosystem that we see out there. Okay. Describe the master agent. What does that look like and, and how do they differ from a distributor? Yeah. So a master agent is a distributor really of services. They don't distribute anything physically and they don't really typically hold credit lines. What they will do is they'll advance commissions for sales that occur now where if a partner needed an income stream and couldn't wait for the two years it would take to get the commissions out of that deal because we pay monthly for a percentage of the billing amount. Some partners can't wait. They'll take over that and pay the partner some up in advance and then they'll take over the payment structure. So that's the, when you think about, you know, credit and floor plan, plan financing, things like that. They don't really do that in the master agent space, but they do provide those commissions in advance in, in some cases. And uh, so really what they do is they'll have 100, 150 companies like mine that sell services in the communication space. And they'll avail those vendors, those suppliers, as they call them, to all their downstream partners, be they agents, MSPs, VARs, system integrators. And then you sell underneath them and you can access just like you would with an Ingram, you can access all those vendors under one roof and they'll get the commissions from all those suppliers and they'll pay them to that agent for however many of them they bill and, and mm -hmm. they'll do it monthly. So it's a, it's a very lucrative model. And a lot of times a partner will have relationships with multiple masters. So there's probably 40 of them in this industry but they're not the size of an Ingram or a Tech Data. Uh, one of the larger okay. ones is one called Intellisys that ScanSource bought that I mentioned earlier, and uh, they're probably one of the largest. There's you know a company out of Salt Lake called Solaris, or one out of Chicago called TBI. These are the master agents in our space, and they function much like a distributor, but a distributor of services, not a distributor of products. It's it's really interesting time, I think, Craig, because you've got this agent model that you've had in place probably all of your telco career. Am I correct? Yeah. I, I spent most of my first part of my career at other companies in the high tech space, IBM, Lotus, and, and, uh, worked for distributors and then got into this space. And, uh, I've been doing it since, um, the, you know, 2000 timeframe. It seems as I talk to SaaS companies and consult with SaaS companies, they're 
often looking for that type of model as opposed to a, a traditional reseller model. Yeah. And it, it seems like there's a convergence going on here. Well, I think there will be more as software, you know, becomes more like what we do. And we even we even sell Office 365, but a number of the master agents sell it too. It's, you know, for things that aren't highly customized that, you know, more generic uh, solutions like that and Azure and so on, the partners are participating in our space already in those models and, and they're getting paid residuals for selling those services. So there's a blueprint of the financial model that already exists. Uh, and, and I think in any case, you know, the partners in our space, they have to sell these solutions, but there is high value from the MSPs doing all the support and integration and application porting. And there's a lot of, that has to be done there. Our partners don't necessarily do all that. So, you know, I think that the worlds of agents and, and MSPs are, are definitely colliding at a faster pace than they ever have in history, uh, at least what I'm seeing. And that's why I think you see distributors looking at this, you know, with Ingram and what they've done with their, their SaaS offerings. And they've got a whole other group of people that have come into the company that are very service oriented people. Um, I think you're just seeing a natural evolution of how technology is being consumed. And that's driving these new financial models and distribution models. Yeah, it's funny. It seems like everyone I'm talking to wants to reach the MSP as a channel. You know, you're, you're branching into the MSPs. SaaS providers are looking at MSPs. It seems like, is that the place to be for a partner? You've got to provide a service and it's going to be a managed service. Maybe you're not starting out as an MSP, but you're kind of moving into that space. Yeah, I think MSPs are definitely a key area. You know, it's a, it's a numbers model. It, you know, if you add up the total partners that will be at this Vegas show that you and I are going to next week, you know, you're going to be looking at maybe five, 7,000. And that's the industry. Maybe the industry totals, you know, 10,000. But in comparison to the IT channel, there's over 100,000 you know, IT-oriented partners out there. And then new ones that wouldn't even consider themselves to be IT might even be a digital marketing agency or an accounting firm that just so happens to sell SaaS that is related to IT technology. Are they an MSP or bar? No, they're an accounting company, but they're influencing the sale of an IT service. So there's mm -hmm. new entrants coming in. And you know, that's why I think it's a, it's a big collision. It's not your traditional bar where it was a linear supply chain where the manufacturer sends the equipment to the distributor, distributor sells it to the VAR, VAR sells it to the end user. I mean, that, that's certainly the classic model, but that's being disintermediated rapidly um, and there's new entrants. So I think th it's a fascinating time in the channel, but a lot of companies are having to adapt. Even when I started in this, most of the sales in this industry were related to voice sales, not data. And of course, mm -hmm. now fast forward to the world of cloud, it's all about data. In 2000, you know, a T1, which is 1.44 megs a second, cost you around $1,500 a month. And today you can get, you know, 100 megs for, you know, 200 bucks or less. Yeah. Uh, at, at uh, you know, nearly 80% more bandwidth. So, you know, you yeah. Moore's law in effect, but that's what's driving, I think, this change from the classic IT model. Of course, you know, you've got an economy of scale and you, you couldn't deliver these solutions that people are delivering today 15 years ago because the bandwidth just wasn't there to do it economically. Now right. you can't, and you can get, even you and I can get a gigabit into our house from Comcast now for 300 bucks a month. You know, so it's, it's an amazing transformation. It is, it is. You know, you think about the, your connectivity, your access to infrastructure, access to software, which I, I keep looking at and how that's driving more and more startups because it's just getting so easy to have almost enterprise class capabilities 
just right out of the gate. And I think, you know, there's still a lot of end users out there that there'll be plenty that want to go on our website or talk to a direct rep, but there's plenty out there that need the help of someone that goes beyond just the connectivity elements. And you start moving into like our SDN product where you've got to manage multiple things and there's a lot more complexity. They really want to talk to a live human being that can construct a solution. So the more these solutions move from more commodity to more upmarket, the more MSPs, bars, and other channel players are going to need to be involved because the customer is going to want somebody like that to deal with who can handle the whole ensemble. And I think that's going to drive the need for more partners. I, I think our percentage of channel-driven activity will rise in time to you know closer, moving in closer to 30, 40, maybe even 50% of our sales. We'll see. Mm -hmm. You know, 10 years from now is a long time, but even in the next five, I, I think it's uh, going to see a lot of that uh, movement and transformation. How have you been successful with your partner program with this agent commission model? Is there anything different or unique that you think you're doing that more traditional ISV with a reseller channel might not be doing? Well, of course, you know, our company is just pure recurring revenue. We don't sell any one-time anything. Um, it's all recurring revenue and everything we do bills over a period of one to three-year contracts. So, mm -hmm. you know, and we don't just bill once annually, we bill every month. Um, so it's a, it's a different economic model. But in this world, you know, and not too different from other worlds, but because we're selling a service that continues to bill, the main thing the channel looks for us to do is to be easy to do business with such that they can interface with us and help their client with the information that client's going to have and need about things related to the network. So we have to give a lot of resource and support and tools, uh, online tools to give the partner the ability to see what's going on with their client and that network. And so that's a mm. lot of what we have to do in this channel is, is provide those sorts of ease of doing business elements that help them. Uh, be able to be more active in that process. And, you know, so if they're going to sell your service, they really need to know what's going on with that service and what's going on with their client base. And uh, from a quote to cash standpoint, so from the time you quote the service to the time it's billing and then post sales, even what's going on with the circuits, if there's a billing problem and so on. And we provide all that and our competitors try to do that as well. But our number one secret sauce, I would say, is, is just how much focus we put on ease of doing business and our operational focus is that, yeah. is, you know, table stakes to survive in this space. Uh, that's what I hear repeatedly from partners that when I ask them, you know, what, what do you need from the vendor? And that's usually the number one answer is just make it easy, make it easy on us because I don't have time. I'm going to switch to another vendor if this is difficult because I just don't have the time. Exactly. Yeah. You can't make it difficult and you've got to have really strong online tools. And we use Salesforce with all of our top partners. So they interface to our back office systems through Salesforce and, that's how, you know, we get it done through a special tool we, we created that's built for Salesforce. So, you know, it, it works for a lot of partners because they're familiar with that. How do you measure your partners? What's kind of the couple of the key metrics that you look at? Is it retention rates, MRR? What are, what are your key metrics for partner evaluation? Yeah, well, certainly uh, for our master agents and, and we have medallion partners that are like the, the frequent flyer type model underneath them. Um, out of all of our partners, there's a few of them that are medallion level, but the master agents mm -hmm. and the medallion level partners, we, we obviously for um, the amount of sales they're driving per month and, and especially by product, we look at, you know, what products they're selling and look at um, how uh, sticky their clients are because there's also churn rates, right? So it's just because you sign up customers, you could also start losing that revenue. Um, so those are some core elements. And then 
in the inverse, we look at things, you know, like how we're doing on their behalf for how long it takes us to get their customers installed um, and how long it takes us to uh, return quotes and things like that, that they look for from us. So we, we measure ourselves pretty aggressively. We, we produce a hundred page report every year of all of our partner feedback on us. And then, you know, we also do quarterly reviews with all our top partners talking about these metrics I just talked about and getting into the details and on many facets of how we're working together with each other. And we've got a track tracking list of about 20 different metrics we look at, uh, not just mm-hmm. the revenue, but other things. And then they look at that too. And they look at us compared to the ILEX and others. And it's like, is, is it easier to work with Comcast? Do they install my customers faster? Do they pay my commission checks on time? Do they have solid channel manager people in the field supporting me and so on? They look at all that uh, in the reciprocal. Right, right. Okay. Speaking of channel managers, what does your team look like? What kind of support team do you have in place to to support this this program? Yeah, I have a pretty big organization based out of Denver, but in the field, we've got um, multiple field channel managers all over the United States in our footprint. And then we've got an inside channel team that handles uh, partners who haven't gotten as big as some of the other ones that don't necessarily need a face-to-face presence, but right. advice with phone support. And um, we have a team of people there. So, you know, we're upwards of cl- closing in on, you know, closer to 40 people that do that all the time. They're bolstered by sales engineers who help them design fiber solutions to reach their clients and then as well SDN solutions. We have a specialized SDN team that only deals with selling our SDN platform that we call Active Core. Mm-hmm. And that's really our big uh, push this year. We're, we're aggressively moving into that space. And now we're finding ourselves, you know, competing with the likes of Cisco and VMware and others who have been in that space. And, and we're in a unique position there because we, we own a network and we also operate our own SDN platform and we can integrate all that together. Those other companies are only over the top solutions. They don't offer a network. And we can also sell in other footprints. So we'll even put it together for a client if they have 100 locations in the US and 30 of them are in Spectrum's footprint or an ILEX footprint, we'll still get the network for that and sell our SDN platform over the top the same way that a Viptela or a Velo Cloud might under VMware or Cisco. So we're very much in that space as well now and we have our own specialized teams to support that. And then beyond all that, I've got a very large ops team that supports all the master agent distributors as special dedicated people for that and, and other people that support certain kinds of orders that come through. So it's a pretty complicated ops model, but it's very focused on ease of doing business. I imagine it has to, given the, the volume that you're working with. How many partners are you working with, too? I don't know if I asked you that. We have thousands. I mean, there's you know literally thousands, but you know, not all of them sell every single month. But there's right. a very large portion of them around the country. And uh you know, like I said, I, I think there's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 agents out there and, and partners who sell in our ecosystem, MSPs and bars. There could be a lot more. And I think this convergence that you and I were talking about earlier will probably take that population of 100 and whatever thousand that CRM believes is out there. Some portion of them are going to enter into selling services in our world. Some already are, and you and I just don't see it because they're already working right. with the agents in a sort of a clandestine partnership that I'm not privy to. Mm with their own underground economy between each other. They've created their own partnership unbeknownst to me and unbeknownst to my competitors, but, but the sourcing of leads and the working of this whole general contractor plumber kind of model for lack of a better analogy, that that's what goes on every day. But I think more and more of the traditional MSPs are going to function and act like agents for a lot of things. They'll also build their own services. So, you know, they may have three revenue streams. They may have a revenue stream for something they built as a service that they offer 
they may have a revenue stream of commissions where they sold on behalf of Comcast or any of our competitors or sold a voice solution. They get commissions from that. And a third revenue stream, which is the biggest profit one, which is doing all the heavy lifting of integration of all the applications and solutions into the cloud and doing all the work that's required there. And they can you know, secure money from all three of those buckets. And I think the future partner is, is going to look much more like that and play in all three of those spaces and or have partnerships with other companies that help them achieve those uh, revenue streams in all three buckets. Which sounds like a very healthy business model, not being dependent on any one revenue stream. Well, and you think about it, you know, what it took in the old days to become a bar and inventory and hiring all these sales engineers and all the support resources. There was a barrier to entry to becoming a bar of the classic bar. And today, I mean, you can enter into the space that I'm in and sell for 150 different suppliers that support cloud and infrastructure and voice over IP and, and communication services, data networks. And you don't have to put up any money to do that. You just start selling. So yeah. the barrier to entry for you know the millennial world and others is very low. You don't have to put up any cash. All you need to do is be able to go out and sell and have client relationships. So I think there's going to be a great opportunity for folks getting into the industry to do that. And then also for partners who add very high value to participate in it as well. And, and I think that that's going to be a, a part of the collision that occurs in the coming years. Is there an aging out of in the agent world, like we're seeing in the VAR world, you know, a lot of these companies, the the owners are getting near retirement. They're thinking about selling their companies and uh, kicking back on the beach. Are you seeing that in the, the agent network as well? Well, yeah, some of them do, but um, the model then endures because the people that are still there can still participate in the model. And, you know, it's an ongoing concern, you know, where they can go and continue to sell and the infrastructure is set up. And, you know, Intellis is a good example. They've had founders there that have been there for many years, but, you know, then the partners underneath, you know, whether those folks retire or not, those partners underneath are going to keep on selling uh, as long as this model exists because it's a good model. And as long as clients that are out there want to deal with their trusted advisor partner, I think that's the key thing is as long as end users want to use these kinds of partners to acquire these services from, then the, the nature of this channel will, you know, continue for quite some time. And, and I think it'll evolve to some extent. I think people have evolved. They used to be much more commodity driven, selling, you know, voice minutes back in the old days, switched long distance and things like that. Back in 2000, mm -hmm. when I got in this thing, that's what people were selling. And that's gone full blast the other direction to now selling full solutions across giant call centers for their voice over IP to SD-WAN networks that are a thousand locations. That was unheard of, you know, back in 2000. And now it's standard fare in today's agent world. So it's really evolved. And I think that's why we're going to see just a continued evolution towards more value add and more uh, technical prowess and, and skill. But I also think for the same reason, the MSPs are going to need to enter into this space because the agent's starting to look closer like an MSP. And I think at some point down mm -hmm. the road, it will be indistinguishable. The channel is the yeah. channel, a partner is a partner, and you won't codify them as a kind of species of partner, just a partner. And, you know, so we, we kind of do that intentionally ourselves. We just call it our solution provider program. But to us, everyone who's in it, whatever species they are, we just call them a partner. And I think that term will endure over time. When you are speaking to partners who are used to the VAR model, the reseller model, where they have the deals done on their paper and they feel like that's so important to own that customer relationship, they kind of link the two, right? It's on my paper. I own the relationship. What kind of conversations do you have with those guys when you bring them your model where they're not a reseller? Yeah. So, you know, it's like the thing is 
and we do offer a reselling model, but only for you know phone-like companies, companies that are in the telecom space that are registered carriers. You know, okay. Mini, mini Comcast, if you will, they're used to building multiple platforms, and they have very uh, complicated systems to to bill for a hundred different carriers out there. They're set up as a telecom company. Th- those are the kind of quote-unquote rebuilders we have. But most you know traditional partners. They have no interest in doing that model. They have no interest in rebuilding communication services. And a lot of them don't even really want to rebuild Azure or AWS or Google because you can, as a customer, buy all that from them. They might do it as a courtesy. But there's no ability to really mark that up. In our case, we're actually paying a pretty hefty commission through our master agents. So it is very lucrative. The margin is, is very high. And the idea that you have to control all billing to own a customer, we've already proven that's wrong because we've been working with these agents and many of them control these customers and we've been billing them for years as has our competitors. So this idea that you lose control and we've proven that to be a false notion because you know, our partners on a continual basis, even if the customers entertains bids from direct reps who might potentially go into those accounts, if they like the partner and the value they have, they're going to acquire the service to the partner. And, and we have models in place to do teaming where we would work with the partner, work with the direct team and work together if we had to in order to uh, satisfy the needs of a given client. But that's been the reason why some partners want to bill it on their papers. They, they think that that's a concern about you know that. And then the other would be whether they can get the multiple on their business to sell it down the road. They want this revenue to count towards that. Uh, mm-hmm. Understand that, but um, you don't have to do that entirely for every single service you sell. That's why I was talking about the buckets earlier. There can be your own service that you bill. There can be third-party services that you don't bill but are in commissions for. And then there could be your value-added services that you add, you know, for your your time, for your people. And I think that's going to be the model. Most partners in the future, they're going to have revenue sources from all three of those buckets, not just one. So uh, that's where I see it coming together. Yeah, and I think, Craig, the model that you've been deploying, your partner model, is, I believe going to be much closer to what we see the SaaS companies deploying as opposed to the traditional resale model. Yes. And you, and because the SaaS service is, looks a lot more like your Comcast services. Sure. And you know what, what we do in like hosted voice is a service we offer, but in, in effect, that is a SaaS service. All it is is software. We're just selling, right. you know, licenses effectively for lo- for, for how many seats the customer has and they pay a certain fee per seat the way you would for a software per seat license. So we already are in that space in a different capacity. It's just software that's, it's voice and voice is an application. And we say this a lot, but you know, we think there's only two things left in life as it pertains to the IT world and it's network and the data that drives the bits and the networks that handle all that. And then the applications and the cloud infrastructure they ride on. Those two Mm -hmm. things are what the IT world is anymore. It's, the network and it's the applications and some partners only do the application side. Some only do the network, but I think more and more are going to start doing both. Uh, and now are starting to, as we see today. Yeah. Craig, let's jump to you and your profession and how you've been so successful as a channel leader in progressing up the ranks in your career. What have been some of your guiding principles and secrets to your success? Well, that's a good question. I, I spent a lot of time, you know, to me, the, the partner is the customer. And you know, when you think about customer experience, we, we have a thing we call it partner experience. We even you know, rate ourselves according to how our partners see us. But it's always putting the partner as your customer because in the end, our partners control the end user decision. They could sell my solution, they could sell my competitors, 
And so as I support them and as that goes, so do I go and our success. Mm -hmm. So I, I spend an inordinate amount of time trying to improve that partner experience. I get out on the road. I'm, I, if I'm spending too much time in my office, I get nervous. I'd rather be out where the partners are because the car, the partner's my customer and yeah, they dictate where I get success or failure because if they're not selling for me, they're selling for my competitor. So I put a hundred thousand miles a year on, you know, airlines to try to go see them all and be part of it because you know, it's relationships that matter. And then having the right support structure in place to support them from the, what I talked about earlier, ease of doing business. So, you know, from my lens, um, you really got to treat the, the, the partners, your customer. Long ago, when I first got in the channel, I, I used to go around the country in the traditional bar world. This is, you know, back early 90s. And I literally mm -hmm. would, for the ones who would be willing to do it, they'd let me stay at their house. And I really got to know them inside and out about how their business worked and who they were as people and all that. And, and a lot of it is relationships like that. It is. And, and I think that's what's allowed me to, to be successful. Then beyond all that, it's what the challenge for any channel leader is, is to get their internal executives uh, enrolled in the notion of value of channel and the financial elements of that, the value added elements of what the partners bring to the equation. Um, there's a lot of internal selling that has to go on to get mm -hmm. folks who may not have been as well informed about the channel world to understand it and to embrace it as a key route to market. Uh, particularly if you're coming in at it from a company that has historically sold more direct, whereas a world like Cisco or, or a Microsoft has always been channel. So, you know, that, that's another challenge that people on this side have to really get their executives to understand the value of the channel. And, uh, and I do spend a lot of time on that as well, but a lot of that missionary work I did um, here already. So I spend now more time trying to get you know, more sales and grow on the channel. How long did that missionary work, that evangelism of the channel take for you when you came into Comcast? Because I, I have clients, I talk to a lot of folks that are in that same boat. You know, they're, they're in companies that are just, they've been selling direct forever, particularly in North America yeah. uh, versus internationally. How long did that take for you? Well, it takes time. And, you know, I would say it, it's never ends because you get new employees coming in that are different leaders and new CFOs and so on. You have to re-educate uh, them all the time. Uh, we've been fortunate to have some stability. But the first tranche of that, yeah, it probably took me two, three years to really get past the, I'm not sure this is a great model or how is this going to work? And, you know, it's a cultural thing. You, you really got to be the, like the chief culture officer for the channel uh, beyond all the other things you need to do because, you know, if you don't have their support, then you have no ability to get anything done. You can't get anything executed upon. You can't right. financials that you need in order to operate the business. So it's not probably the funnest thing, but once you overcome that and you get them, you know, there's kind of a magic light that goes off and they finally understand what it's all about. But a lot of times, you know, until someone's lived that viscerally, it's one thing to tell them, but to, if they see it themselves, if they go see partners, if they go spend time with partners, they see clients that are coming in being won by partners, and suddenly they realize there's there's many routes to market out there, but direct sales is one route to market. Online sales is another and so on. And channel sales is another. And, I, and we as a company have many, many, many routes to market and our co competitors do too. But the channel is, is definitely one of the fastest growing of all of those. Who was your toughest sell? Was it the financial side, the CFO or the sales side, maybe your, your CRO? No, I think, you know, sales, I get it. Um, my, I was fortunate. My, my boss, Terry Connell, has always been very channel friendly. In fact, it was his idea to start this thing in the first place. So he brought me on. So, I mean, I think he was enrolled in it, but there were others, you know, in different other functions and in the field, especially financial people, 
um, some market leaders, some others that weren't so enrolled. And, you know, until we demonstrated success and until they were able to participate in that success, it was hard for them to get the connection uh, to the value. So mm-hmm. it takes time and then you definitely need to be patient because it's, it's not something that happens overnight. It, it takes, you know, in some cases, depending on the size of your company, it can take many years. Yeah. But to, to get people into a channel centric culture, um, it's not easy to do. And, uh, and you really got to be patient and, and work through a lot of issues. But if you are patient over time, I always believe, you know, the channel in the end, you know, wins out because the ultimate arbiter of this discussion is the end user and how they wish to buy is going to determine what that channel strategy looks like for any company. And the more right. the customer says, I want this partner in the middle, the more the channel is going to be in the middle. The more they say, I want direct, then obviously the opposite is true. Yeah, it's great to hear you say that, Craig. I, I had that exact same conversation this morning with a client of mine, and we were talking about the importance of the customer. And at the end of the day, your your channel strategy has to align to how they want to buy. Precisely. And, you know, I read that in a book uh, called Marketing Channels. I'm a, a guy who was at... Um, uh, the business school in uh, Chicago and Northwestern. And he wrote, you know, a, a book long ago about marketing channels, which if you know about the four P's is product price promotion in place or distribution. Right. Distribution seems when I went to you know school years ago, marketing kind of, you know, that, that subject was always kind of passed over about, you know, how the channels of, of routes to market in, in this book, I really got a lot out of it, but it talked about, you know, how you build, a distribution system for a company to get its product from the, the warehouse, so to speak, to the actual end customer. And, you know, it's interesting. Most of the world economy out there, 75% or so under most estimates is driven indirectly for many things, whether it's, you know, coffee or it's cars, automobiles, uh, things that aren't IT element, you know, oriented or driven indirectly. This industry, you know, telecom has not been that way, especially. It's, it's not been oriented around a channel distribution model, more direct only. Mm-hmm. And it's by the nature of the services that we sell. But um, but I think it's it's interesting, the rest of the world and most goods and services that we as consumers and businesses buy are sold through some sort of distribution intermediary. So to me, it's a fascinating space. You know, at some day in my life, I may want to go back and teach about it in school. So I felt it was neglected when I was going to school. Everyone wanted to talk about finance and marketing and um, you know, accounting and other things related to business. But when you talk about distributing a product, no one wanted to talk about that when I was going to school. It was just like a, a subject that was glossed over. I think it's such an incredible thing. I, I got into it because my father was in it before me at IBM, uh, helping start the channel there. So uh, I love it. And I think it's been a great uh, career. Your dad helped to start the channel at IBM? Yeah, he was, he was there in the early 80s when they started the, that project. He was flown down to the secret meeting down in Boca where they had invented the PC and uh, talked about how they were going to get it distributed, of course, and they needed a, a different mechanism for doing that. And he was part of the team that was doing that. With At the time, there was Sears Business Center as one of their first channel partners. And there was um, uh, Computerland, which was another one, names that are now extinct, but were like marquee names back in those days. Because those were companies that were selling office products, copiers, word processors, and they were the, the next iteration of that was the PC uh, right. for Apple, same for Compaq. But yeah, he was part of that crew. And then you know, from that, the quote unquote IT channel was born from there. Well, I think you're my first guest, Craig, that was almost born into the channel. <laughs> yes, frightening. I, and I never would have thought I would have done that either. But it was just kind of a thing of convenience how it all happened. But I ended up going to work for Businessland as one of my first jobs out of school. And learn about this whole space and people don't even know what business land is anymore because it's now 
part of so many other companies' names that have now since taken over. But, but you know, the point of it all is that that, that was how computers were sold back then. Nobody wanted to sell them through direct models back then. They needed some partner to support the customer. So if there was a break-fix issue, then you'd go out and you'd send your technician and fix the hard drive or whatever. And the IBMs and compacts of the world didn't want to do that. They needed a partner mm-hmm. that could do that. You could argue how, how much value there was in that, but in the end, it was like, no, we need we need a dealer network, you know, is what they used to call it back then. And, and I still yeah. think that same notion applies today, that somebody, you know, uh, needs to help that customer. And yes, you can sell it direct, but is it more efficient to sell it through a distribution channel? Yeah, and there are still probably tens of thousands of those break-fix mom-and-pop shops out there. Yeah, that are yeah, they're still out there. I mean, even for my home stuff, I have a guy in Boulder that does things for me to you know, deal with my own home network, but um, there's always a need for somebody you know, to get uh, support from, you know, even at the yeah. consumer level. Yeah. Well, very good. Very interesting conversation, Craig. How about on the personal side? So you are living out in Colorado. Are you in the Boulder area? No, I'm in Denver. Um, so in I've Denver? been in Denver for a while, but uh, yeah, I love it out here. It's a great place, good lifestyle, healthy lifestyle. And, um, you know, I spend a lot of time outdoors and mountain biking and golfing and uh, try to get outdoors as much as I can. And so you know Heather Margolis from Channel Maven. I do, yeah. Just had lunch with her yeah. uh, a week ago, so yeah. Did you? Yes. Yeah, and she was nice enough to introduce us, so that's how I got to know you. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, and Heather's going to be on my show next week. Oh, good, good. Well, yeah, she's got a lot of great information, and you know, we, we always talk about this from all these different worlds, so it's fascinating to see um, you know, her perspective and yours on the side that's been more traditional IT and MSPs and bars and mine, which is kind of more of this agent world. Uh, but I do think you know it's all coming together, and it'll be interesting to see that uh, next week in Las Vegas, uh, but that show's a pretty pretty amazing place that you, you don't realize how big this thing is until you see all the suppliers on the show floor and all the things that you can sell as an individual mm-hmm. for all these different services that you don't have to actually create and you don't have to build for them either. So there's a lot of people that find that very appealing model. They're like, wow, I can, I can really make a lot of money. And, you know, I, I learned a lot about this model just from my financial advisor and my insurance agent, because that's exactly how they're compensated. So these aren't yeah. weird models that have never been used by businesses in America. These are, these are things that have gone back 100 years that, you know, the telecom industry picked up on in the 80s when they started selling long distance. And I think, too, the IT industry will, will jump into some portion of it. I, I certainly don't think everything's going to go this way to the agent side, but some portion of their sales uh, will be, I think, uh, in the future and now be, be driven by companies like mine and, and other competitors. And Yeah. Well, Craig, I know you love talking channels. You love talking business, but I'm going to try to pull you back to the personal side. Where did you grow up? Um, well, I grew up all over. I'm from Ohio originally. Okay. Then, uh, my dad being the IBM, he moved around a lot. We, we lived in New Jersey for a while, but for the most part, um, I spent time in Colorado. And then, you know, I worked for IBM. I spent time in, in uh, Texas, California, and even in South America for a while. So I, I've done my tour of duty around uh, the, the country, but I still fly 100,000 miles a year. So while Denver's my home base, I feel like United and Marriott are really more my home base. Yes. Because I'm always all over the country. But uh, I had just happened to be, a, I, I love the West. I think it's a great place. What do you like to do? I know you're a golfer. Are there other things you like to do? Yeah, I said earlier, I, I like to mountain bike a lot. And there's, as, as you know, from uh-huh. being out here, uh, there's a lot of great mountain biking trails all over the place, uh, whether it's Golden or the Western part of Denver. There's great trails up there and it's a great workout. So I, I love doing that too and getting outdoors and skiing as well. Mm-hmm. I also like to fish. I've fished all over the world. That's, Something that not everyone knows that I do or have done. 
I used to chase a trophy marlin and try to catch, you know, giant marlin all over. I've wow. fished in, you know, pretty much every major continent that has those large fish. I've, I've been on uh, charter boats and gone out deep sea fishing and fishing for marlin tuna and things like that. And I, I did that a lot of years ago too. It gets expensive, unfortunately, so you can't do it, too much. <laughs> uh, especially if gas prices rise, but, um, but it's fun. It's so great being out in the ocean. So I do a lot of that too when I can. Very nice. I'm a big sailor. And one of the things I love to do when we're sailing offshore is just drag a line behind us. Yeah. And we catch wahoo, we catch mahi mahi. It's just, it's just fun. You know, you you're not even really working for it. You just check your line occasionally. Oh, I got something. Yeah, it'd be great just to get something, just not even trying and and reel it in and have dinner, which is great. Wahoo is great tasting, but uh, I love doing it. You never know what you're going to get when you go out on those boats, and it's fun when you get a, a really large fish on the line. It is. Have you done any mountain biking down in the Phoenix area? Yeah. Well, it's, you got to do it the right time of year and certainly in the next month or so, you won't be able to do it very easily unless you want to deal with hundred and plus degree temperatures. But in the winter, it's great. There's a lot of great trails, um, all over around there. So you just got to be careful not to fall down and run into a cactus. You'll have a bad day. Um, we have some in Colorado, but not nowhere near the amount that you have in, in Arizona, but there's some great trails out there. So Craig, I've got to send you a picture. I was out in Phoenix a couple weeks ago, mountain biking uh, near the Superstition Mountains. Yeah. And I, I got a little too close to a cactus. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> and it stuck on you, huh? And you <laughs> it did. It was one of those jumping cactuses. <laughs> yeah. Cacti. <laughs> yeah, the chola. Yeah, that was uh, bad news. You can end up in an emergency room with one of those if you're not careful. Yeah, the guy I was riding with, he carries pliers to pull them out of you. <laughs> Oh yeah. I've seen it. You know, I've had it even on a golf course where you're just not paying attention. And next thing you know, you've got one stuck to your leg or rear end. It's not good. <laughs> that was the first mountain biking I'd done where we brought pliers and a gun in case we yeah. <laughs> got too close to a rattlesnake. <laughs> oh yeah. And there, there was a lot of that too. Uh, less in the winter, but um, pretty soon they'll, they'll be out in force. Yeah. yeah. Well, Craig, um, great chatting with you. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave for our audience? Well, I just think it's a fascinating time in our industry. And, you know, I think, you know, in the past, you might have even gotten a, a bit bored about what was going on in the tech industry and channels and distribution. But today it's happening at such a rate and pace that it's just exciting to be in this space. And, you know, who would have thought a company like Comcast is competing in the SDN world, but we are and very aggressively. And it just proves, you know, just how much radical change is out there and where there's all that change, there's opportunity and a lot of margin. So I think, channel has a huge opportunity to be a participant in that economic model. And uh, I find it fascinating. I think it's going to be exciting and uh, I can't wait to get going further in this year and look forward to seeing you next week out in Vegas. Excellent, Craig. I look forward to seeing you too. That's going to be a lot of fun. Sounds good. Hey guys, that was an awesome episode. Craig provided a ton of channel knowledge packed into 45 minutes. One of the things that I liked that he mentioned was that under the telco partner model, his agents and MSPs, they get the benefit of residual commissions for the life of a customer. Now, they don't get to bill on their own paper, but they do get to get the commissions without having to own any assets or be paying any debt on those assets. I can see why this model is being replicated by many SaaS companies. You can find other key takeaways, show notes, and resource links on my website at channeljourneys.com backslash CJ17. I actually recorded this episode before the Channel Partners Expo out in Vegas. 
I had the pleasure of meeting Craig at the show. What a great guy. Super genuine, humble, and the real deal. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and review. And be sure to join me next week for my interview with Sunir Shah. Sunir is the founder of his own software company that we talk about. He's also the founder of the Cloud Software Association and the SaaS Connect Conference. Until next week, have a great channel journey. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends. And be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.